0: going to officially start the business meeting of the American Association for State and Local History. I would like to welcome you to this annual business meeting. We will begin by having a having our secretary, Dina Bailey, uh, report on the minutes. And she will be followed by Noel Trent, who will provide the election results. Dina.
1: Good morning, everyone. My job is the easiest right now. Just to let you know, the minutes are in the packet. So if you did not receive a packet on your seat, go ahead and grab one from the person the empty seat next to you. All right. Be taking a look through those minutes. I'll give you two seconds. So I'd like a motion to accept the minutes. <laughs> Time out. My motion is going to be from Jim Vaughn. Second, please. Ann, thank you. Um, all in favor? Aye. Any opposed? Any opposed? Thank you very much. Motion carries. Good
2: morning. I'm here to read the resu- election results uh, for 2019. Voting occurred between June 1st and July 1st, 2019. Elected candidates will take their seats on the council or the nominating committee at the conclusion of this meeting. I apologize if I might mispronounce any names. For the leadership nominating committee, Kwasi Ageman, Ohio History Connection, Tremia Jackson, American Museum of Natural History, and Sue Taylor, New Mexico Museum of Space History. For the council, Ashley Booknight, formerly at Andrew Jackson Hermitage, Trevor Jones, History Nebraska, Jennifer Ortiz, Utah Division of Arts and Museums, and Jennifer Kilmer, Washington State Historical Society, who is returning to council. The following have been appointed by Chair of Council, John Fleming, and confirmed by Council to fill vacancies on the Council. Mari Carpenter, the Wrangling Museum, will serve an extra year on the Council. Melissa Bingman, West Virginia University Public History Program, will be filling a two-year term. And Lisa Anderson, Woodbury Art Museum at Utah Valley University, will be filling a three-year term. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Each year we pause at this time to recognize the dedication, the labor, the camaraderie of council members whose time on the governing body of AASLH has drawn to a close. I would like to call forward the four members of the council, the class of 2015 through 2019, whose terms ex- officially end at the end of this meeting, Aaron Carson Mask, Sarah Farron, Marion Carpenter, and Jennifer Kilmer. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Uh, so, so there are four who are leaving council, but two are actually returning to council, so they don't get plaques. They have, <laughs> to, they have to finish their service. Uh, so Mari's doing an extra year, and then Jennifer was just elected to another four years, and she had been filling a vacancy for someone else. It's very complicated. <laughs> so these two are leaving, and they are being recognized.
0: I would like to invite to the podium Kim Fortney chair of the governance committee.
4: Thanks John. All right, who wants to talk about governing documents? <laughs> Yay! <laughs> All right. So, I would like to begin by thanking the members of our governing documents task force. Um, we, when we talked about doing this back in uh, a year or so ago, we, we created a task force to work specifically on governing documents to look closely at them. This group of people has worked tirelessly for the past year to bring you the documents that you have doc- in your packets um, and hopefully had a chance to look at before this meeting. Um, a few of those folks couldn't make it to this meeting, so when you see them, please thank them. And a few others are here today, so please join me in thanking as they stand. I'm gonna ask you to stand if you were working on this effort. Um, this Doug Evelyn, okay. Jim Gardner, I know couldn't be here today. Um, Ann, Ann McCudden, as well. Um, Doug, Jim, and Ann are emeritus members, and they have been very, very, very helpful with, through their long view of things, so I'm very grateful to them. Um, and then, current council members Stacy Klingler, Catherine Kane, John Fleming, and Dina Bailey. And of course, John Dictal, um, without, without whom we wouldn't get a whole lot done. So, thank you very much to this wonderful group. Please join me in thanking them, they have worked very hard. <laughs> All right, so, why are we here? Um, Over a year ago, we discovered that we were out of compliance with the DC Nonprofit Code. Um, Why the DC Nonprofit Code? Because you may not know, fun fact, that ASLH was incorporated in Washington DC in 1944. So we must follow the Nonprofit Code of of the District of Columbia. Um, So both the Articles of Incorporation and the bylaws, and actually also the Constitution, were out of compliance. So that had to be addressed as soon as possible. We hired a Washington, D.C.-based lawyer who has expertise in this area to help us bring our documents into compliance. We also worked to clean up a few other things while we were in there, and they include things like um, eliminating committees whose functions are now carried out by staff or by other committees, so they're more or less obsolete, Um, clarifying the nominations and, and voting procedures adding a higher bar for making what we've termed fundamental changes to the org- organization, things like transferring or selling assets, merging or voting to disband. Um, also, we've, we cleaned things up by broadening and adding flexibility to the purpose statement that appears in the Articles of Incorporation and the bylaws. Um, why did we do that? We felt that it's a best practice for the purpose to not be limiting in a document like the Articles of Incorporation, which is cumbersome to amend. Um, it's different from a mission statement or a, or a vision statement. Those things can morph over time. Um, but a purpose statement is really designed to withstand the test of time with occasional but rare um, revisiting to possibly tweak it a little bit. So that's what we've done this time. Um, and it, We feel that it, it, it better reflects what ASLH is now and its, its membership composition. Since the 1940s, a slave membership has broadened its scope while recognizing that history happens in communities, not necessarily limited by geographic boundaries. State, local, and provincial history frequently connect with regional, national, and I- international history, and we don't want to exclude any of those. Um, our focus continues to be, of course, on serving all history practitioners with an emphasis on community, local, and state history. So moving forward, uh, there should be a slide coming up that has the amendments for you all to see. Maybe, nope, no. Nope. Nope. All right, I'm gonna read them. Okay, <laughs> so um, we will be um, asking you as members to vote. The council has already approved these, these three motions and we would like you to consider them as well. Um, again, I trust that you read through if you have a great interest in governing documents. Some of you were excited about it, so hopefully you have. Uh, if not, and you can really read quickly, they're in your packet right now. Um, so we are asking for votes from individual and institutional members. Now, if you have a star on your badge, so look at your, look at your badge and right below the, what are we waiting for? There will be a little asterisk if you are a member. Now that could mean that you're an individual member or that you are an institutional or you, you are a member by virtue of your in institution. Um, And each individual member gets one vote. And each institution is represented by one designee who gets one vote. So there might be some of you who technically are voting twice, Okay, if you're here to represent an an institution. If you're not sure if you are that person in your institution who will be voting on behalf of the institution, um, we would ask you to please abstain unless you are also an individual member. Does that make sense? (laughs) Okay, all right, so here we go. Um, So Chairman Fleming, I offer the following motion to approve the revised Articles of Incorporation. Do we have a second? Thank you. That would be Jennifer, she was louder than Scott. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Um, do you wanna call or shall I? Okay, all in favor, say aye. aye. All opposed? Okay, that motion carries. Number two, to, I I made it and Jennifer seconded. Okay, Um, the second motion I'm making is to approve the elimination of the Constitution. I know that sounds radical. (laughs) (laughs) We have power only over this little one, right? Um, Do I have a second for that? Second, it was uh, Sandra. All in favor? Say aye. Aye. All opposed? Okay. And the third and final, to approve the revised bylaws. Have a second for that. Steve. Thank you, Steve. All in favor? Aye. All opposed? Well, you guys are easy. Okay. All right. Well, thank you very, very, very much. It has been a a pleasure um, working on the Governance Committee and working with the task force on this on this job, and I appreciate you all coming to the meeting and taking time to read these documents, which are important. Thank you.
3: Good morning. I am John Dichtel. Um, I work for you. (laughs) And uh, we are five minutes ahead of schedule, even though we started five minutes late. I don't know how that happened. So that's a wonderful thing um this year we're trying something a little bit different both my uh presidential remarks report that i'm required by the bylaws to give each year and our treasurer's report that's required are in the packets in front of you so if even if i were to be struck down right now we would have met uh the letter of the law you have the reports in front of you um, and i was hoping that that would carve doing it that way would carve out some more time at the end of the meeting of the membership so we could have. Discussion, sort of a town hall meeting, um, and I, I think we might get there. But then it turned out I had to do a lot of thanking of people, and then other things came up that I have to say, so I, I still have to talk at you for just a little bit. Um, first, I want to explain um, the movement of council. There are a lot of council members here, um, and if they could actually all just stand up for a moment. Anyone who's on council right now, including some of the people up here, just raise your hand. Just raise your hand if you're on council up here. Okay thank you okay and so we have 21 members of council um, there are four leaving but two are staying to, to fill vacancies or because one was reelected. Uh, we also have four new people coming on council and then in addition to that there are two other people lisa anderson and melissa bingman and if they could stand i don't know you already stood but stand again lisa anderson I'm Lisa who are coming on council to replace other vacancies. So this is, this is by far the most uh, mix we've had on council uh, in, in a long time, but I just wanted to recognize all of them. Um, so our, this is the second time that we've met in Philadelphia. The last time was in 1959. Yeah, long time ago. Um, we have 1,278 people at this conference. Yes, that's right. History matters. Uh, so it is—it is a near record. We think that the biggest ASLH meeting was in 1999 in Baltimore, when it was a joint meeting with the Mid-Atlantic uh, uh, Association of Museums, and that was about 1,400 people. But this one was very close. It's definitely the best meeting in 20 years. An incredibly rich program. And when I think about the people who came to the conference in Philadelphia in 1959 and 60 years ago, it's kind of exhilarating to think about how foreign all of us would have felt to them. Uh, Many things familiar, obviously, many of the same topics of discussion, but everything from social media to uh, the event that we had at Eastern State last night, um, all kinds of other things would have been just bewildering, I think, to um, an earlier version of us in 1959. Um, You know, I think they would recognize a lot of the same challenges that we're facing. um, I think the world today would have been astounding to them. Um, so much of historical scholarship has changed in 60 years, uh, it, you know, the, hist- the history that's written, the history that we all share and interpret and that we add to, it's constantly being revised, and I think it's important that we remind ourselves and our visitors and our stakeholders that the process of history, history writing, is, a, is constant revision, and that's not a bad word. So it's been revised, improved, there's new evidence, new sources, new perspectives, and new voices all the time, and revision is what historians do, just as experts in other fields do that in their fields. We don't expect medicine to stop because they figured out the answer. Um, All experts, uh, all fields of knowledge are advanced and revised, and we need to remember that and say that, Um, just like we say that history is relevant and it needs to be inclusive. Uh, so I wouldn't be able to sum up all the ways that the field has changed since 1959, um, but I think for a moment we should just look at um, what happened last week, last weekend at the uh, 1619 commemoration at Fort Monroe, the 400th anniversary of African's landing at Old Point Comfort, and then also um, what the New York Times did with their 1619 project. Um, imagine our colleagues 60 years ago, what they would have made of that. And, and what the Times New York Times was trying to do, um, and this is a quote, uh, how they defined the project, the 1619 Project, to reframe the country's history, uh, understanding 1619 as our true founding and placing the consequences of slavery and contributions of black Americans at the very center of the story we tell ourselves about who we are. And that's an incredibly profound shift in, in, a, in a way of, oops, oh sorry, perceiving and thinking about um, American history uh, and it's truly exciting, and it's that kind of reshifting, uh, looking at things differently, revising, which is what it, it's the work that all of us do. I gesture with my hands. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, I guess it's better than gesturing with my feet. That would be weird. Uh, so, what what the New York Times did, um, you know, the, the threads running through this conference that are most interesting and exciting, most exhilarating, those are the epitome of being relevant and being inclusive. And it's not about uh, only making history useful now, but to reframe what we thought we knew about the past and and help us all see the broad contours of the past uh, much more clearly. So thinking about how much of that kind of work was accomplished at this conference and will continue to be accomplished at this conference, I want to thank the program and host committees, um, all the volunteers working here. including everyone um, doing poster sessions, people on panels, doing sessions, doing workshops, um, all that work. The conference obviously couldn't happen without them. Um, so a big round of applause for Jackie Barton. Wait, let me say their names first. Jackie Barton, our program chair, and, and she could stand up wherever she is. I'm sure she's here right there in the middle. And for uh, Bill Adair and David Young, who are the co-hosts of our, they probably aren't here. They're probably out managing workshops and things and tours. Uh, but a round of applause for Bill and David <laughs> and their committees. And um, annual meetings are incredibly expensive. Each gallon of coffee that we stop drinking your coffee. Each gallon of coffee that we order from this hotel is about $130. I got
0: my money's worth.
3: Yeah. Good coffee. <laughs> um, and our A V rental costs for Kansas City And I'm telling you about Kansas City because we don't yet know exactly what this meeting will cost, but our AV rental cost for Kansas City was $42,000. Yeah, and um, internet access for this meeting is $14,000. So meetings are very expensive, so we rely on the volunteer work of many, many people. Um, We also rely on our sponsors to help keep the cost of the meeting affordable. Uh, And we're very fortunate to have two, I think I'm supposed to be the clicker. Nope, sorry, okay. So you saw the slide, sorry, the rotating slide of sponsors. Uh, uh, We had incredible support this year from the Pew Center for Arts and Heritage and the First Division Museum at Cantigny, excuse me, Cantigny Park, um, who sponsored the evening event last night at Eastern State Penitentiary and and, um, have really led the way among all the sponsors. Uh, We have different levels of sponsors that you saw. We have our platinum sponsors, the Eastern State Penitentiary itself, History IT, uh, PICO, the Hegley Museum and Library, um, and then many other sponsors. And we're grateful to every single one of them because they keep the cost of this meeting affordable or somewhat affordable. So thank you. Okay. Some more thank yous. So, all doing the work of the organization and it really relies on the program and host committees, but there are many other committees. We have 37 other, excuse me, 35 other committees. A total of 37, some three 30 to 400 people, doing all kinds of work for the organization. In addition to the work that they do, they are also the eyes and ears of the organization, keeping us attuned to to critical issues in the field, things we might not uh, uh, be able to pay attention to from the office, and then. Coordinating the work of all those committees takes a huge amount of staff time, um, and I want to thank all the volunteers of those committees. Um, and I also want to thank a great big thank you to the ASLH staff. So, if they could stand, and I, I think they're sort of clustered over here, but I see some back there. So, so stay, stay standing. So I'm gonna. So, they are incredibly flexible, creative, uh, committed, um, a really fun group of people to work with. Um, I think they're mostly here. Some are missing. So, there are 10 of us, nine of them, one of me, (laughs) pitted in battle all the time against each other. Um, So, Bethany Hawkins, who really runs the whole meeting, uh, she's also chief of operations, so she really runs everything. Could you raise your hand? Bethany. Yes, okay. And Sherry Cook, our Senior Program Manager, way in the back, okay. (laughs) Terry Jackson, right there, raise your hand. Randall's membership. Asia Bain, Publications Manager. I don't know if Asia's in the room. John Marks, Strategic Initiatives. Dara Fogarty, Marketing. Natalie Flamia, education, Alex Collins, does everything, and Ray, newest to the staff, th- that's an order of, rough order of, of seniority, not seniority, but uh, tenure, thank you, longevity. No, I think the last one, it's tenure, yes. And, and Ray Regenstrife-Harms is the newest member of the staff. And then we also have an intern, Tori Kleinpeter, and I don't know if she's in the room. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you. Uh, they're incredibly talented. I'm really proud of them, and they work incredibly hard all year. Uh, I do want to draw your attention to Terry Jackson, who this is her last meeting because she's retired. I'm pointing at you. I'm going to point at you. She's retiring in February, so she won't be here next year. This is her 13th or 14th ASLH annual conference. Uh, one of the senior members of the staff um, has really provided a lot of leadership and and training and and and. Um, uh, words aren't coming to me. Uh, passing on wisdom to the other staff. Um, I want to say enculturation. That's not the right word. Uh, so she's been really incredible for that, and we'll, we will miss her next year. But I wanted to draw extra attention to her. Staff. Thank you, <laughs> <Kerry>. <laughs> Okay. Thank you. you sit down. I don't get to order them around like that. Stand up again. Stand up again. No, no. Sit down. Sit down. Sit down. Um, So i wanted to mention uh, the newest member of our staff ray reagan strife harms in particular uh, not because he's awesome but he is but because of the position we were able to create that position in the middle of the year outside of the operating budget because we really needed it Um, the work of the organization is just growing incredibly quickly Uh, we're involved now really leading a national effort i think to organize the field for the 250th anniversary of the country to make it about inclusion to make it about relevance um, and that's taking extra staff. We've gotten some major grants. We're, we're waiting to hear on some other major grants that's going to require more staff. So this staff will grow and we will need your help with that. We will need your donations. We will need, uh, there are donation cards on the chairs in front of you. We will be hitting you all up uh, this fall. That that money is really important for giving us money outside of the budget that gives us flexibility. Um, and we also ask that you be Good ambassadors of the organization, get other people to join, get your institution to perhaps raise its institutional uh, rate or raise your own rate, go up to a sustaining, uh, contributing, or sustaining level. Um, that's really important for giving us the funds we need to get the staff to do all this work. Um, I do want to thank uh, the Missouri Historical Society in History Nebraska. And um, if uh, Trevor Jones, who is on council, is from History Nebraska, um, I don't know if anyone from Missouri Historical Society, Nick Hoffman or anyone else from Missouri Historical Society? Raise your hand. Thank them for being our very top level members, uh, institutional members of the organization. We created a new institutional due structure last year and we tried to lower the dues for the smallest institutions and then rely on the larger institutions to increase their dues and then created a couple top categories and History of Nebraska, uh, Missouri Historical Society went to the highest level, and then the Alabama Historical Commission is at the next level. And if anyone's from Alabama Historical Commission or just from Alabama, you could raise your hand and we could thank you. So thank you to them. I'll clap for them. Thank you. Um, Okay, I will cut to the end. We need these resources. The work is really exciting. We support all of you and what you do. Our continuing education is growing. Um, Our STEPS program has been reinvigorated, will be relaunched early next year. In your packet is a list of 20 initiatives that are all underway right now. Some will be finishing up soon, some will be lasting many years, but they're all happening right now for us, and that's going to take staffing to do, and it's going to take resources, so so please help us. Um, Let me switch to the Treasurer's Report. Uh, I have no numbers to show you on the screen. I'm just going to make it. Oh, I guess I, it's on the same slide. I'm sorry. OK. So the treasurer's report, I will just point out a couple highlights to make this very fast. Uh, we finished the fiscal year June 30th with, uh, one, with revenues of $1,649,786 and expenses of $1,649,677, leaving a huge surplus of $109. Yay. Uh, we had projected a much larger surplus of about 24 dollars or $25,000, but we were able to use that projected surplus through the course of the year to absorb some unanticipated or extra budgetary costs, including that creation of that staff position. And I assure you that Ray gets paid more than $24,000 a year, uh, but it helped us create that position. Um, and we uh, also were able to pay for some um, uh, inclusion, diversity, um, cultural bias kind of work with council, where we hired a, a consulting firm to come in and work, and work with council members, um, and then we were also able to pay the attorney uh, Washington DC rates for helping us with the bylaws, and that, that alone was about $8,000. Um, so we kind of spent the surplus down to $109, but we still finished in the black. Meanwhile the endowment investments have risen to 1942000 Five hundred and twenty-two dollars. About a hundred thousand of that is grant money that is really just being parked in the in the investments, um, and we'll be pulling that back out over the next two years to pay for our our frameworks, our framing history grant, where we are working with the uh, Frameworks Institute. And um, I just I'll just close by saying that the twenty projects on that sheet that you have that is sort of my report to you, um, are incredibly exciting. They are all first steps. Um, there's a lot more work coming, a lot more um, energy coming out of this organization, um, and at the end of the day, we know we will need staff members to do that. Um, and I know you believe in the direction that ASLH is headed, otherwise you wouldn't be here. Um, I ask for your help so that we can provide the leadership and resources to help the community, history community thrive so that history institutions can do their work, so they can make the past more meaningful to all people. And uh, we in the office believe history matters, and we know you do too. So, thank you.
0: Thank you, John. Thank you for all of the fine work that you do. Thank you, staff. Thank you, colleagues, for the great contribution that you've made to the association. was talking this morning with Doug Evelyn and Jim Vaughn, and we were sort of reminiscing about the good old days, <laughs> going back to the 60s and 70s, and I had been given some thought to that when I was asked to make some remarks, um, especially since uh, early in August I turned 75, and I um, thought that that would give me the privilege of um, uh, going back and looking at um, uh, some things that have happened to the field over the last uh, four decades. So this title, what are we waiting for? What an appropriate theme for the American Association for State and Local History 2019 Annual Meeting. The theme gives us an opportunity to reassess our past to prepare as we move into the future. The future of AASLH is bright as we get closer to celebrating, in the next two decades, our 100th anniversary of our founding, and as we coordinate the national effort to celebrate the nation's semi-quincentennial—see, I said (coughs) it— In 2026, I cannot think of an organization better prepared to lead the charge than AASLH. My own personal history, in many ways, reflects the growth and development of the museum's field as a whole. I entered the museum field toward the end of the Civil Rights Movement and the Black Power Movement in the 1980s and as an employee of the Ohio Historical Society, which was then charged with developing the National Afro-American Museum and Cultural Center at Wilberforce, Ohio. Going back to the 70s, the society was making an effort to be inclusive by hiring African-Americans in various departments throughout the uh, organization. My first Museum Association annual meeting was in Boston where there were over 5,000-plus members of the American Association of Museums and barely 19 African Americans who had met the day before in the newly formed African American Museums Association. Throughout the 1980s, both AAM and AASLH attempted to recruit African Americans to serve on their boards. I was invited to serve on the executive committee of AAM, and I often felt that I was there for show as opposed to making a contribution. Seldom was my advice given serious consideration during the board discussion, and if it was, it was only after another board member rephrased my recommendation that it was accepted. AAM had created a form of diversity but not inclusion. It has taken until 2019 in our profession to move from efforts at diversity to one of inclusion and equity. This conference is a testament to our efforts to achieve racial, ethnic, sexual orientation, economic diversity and inclusion. So why is this important? Only when we all are at the table in an inclusive environment can we begin the discussion of critical issues facing us as a nation. We must be prepared to take bold initiatives if we want to have an impact on what is happening today and to be able to respond in a practical way to future events. Museums can and have made a difference when, it faces, when, when they face tragedy. In 2001, people in Cincinnati's Over the Rhine district rioted in a, when an unarmed black man confronted by police ran away and was shot in the back trying to scale a fence. It was this very week that I started my new position as director of the Cincinnati Museum Center. And I was told by the president that we should develop an exhibition on the riots to answer questions that the community was posing. Such questions as why black people riot? Why would a black man run from the police? And why would a police officer shoot a black man running away. Old issues. These are all issues that we continue to confront today. I thought it was a great idea, but wondered how effectively an exhibition of this type would be a year or two later, knowing how long it would take to produce an exhibit. The president insisted that we open the exhibition in 90 days. For such a critical exhibition, we knew that if we had, to, we had to do things differently. In order to ensure that all voters would be, all voices would be heard, we established a community advisory board that included participants who, people who had participated in the riots, neighborhood businessmen and women, members of the religious community, police officers, civil and social leaders. Through the input of this committee the exhibit answered many questions posed by the community. People riot because they felt like their voices were not being heard. Visitors to the exhibition learned that riots in Cincinnati occurred as early as 1793 and most riots were, um, were done by whites as opposed to blacks as people thought. Most riots occurred because people felt like their voices had not been heard. The expression of fear by the police was represented among the many videos of individuals from the community who were allowed to express their feelings. The result, over 10,000 people attended the exhibition in four months and we held community conversations in safe spaces provided by the museum. In the 1990s, Alex Wise came up with the idea in Richmond, Virginia, of a Civil War museum that would tell the story of the Confederates, unions, and African Americans, and why they fought in the Civil War. He thought that this would serve as a model for understanding why people have different, people go to war from different perspectives. He felt like if all sides could understand why people fought, then this could serve as, a, as the basis for resolving 150 years of division within our country. He felt that he was particularly suited to create this museum because he was the direct descendant of Governor Wise of Virginia who had signed the death warrant for John Brown and he had served as a general in the uh, Confederate Army. Today, the Civil War Center is one run by an African-American female, Christy Coleman, who not only negotiated the combining of the Museum of the Confederacy with the Civil War Center, but also helped negotiate the removal of some and the reinterpretation of other Confederate statues situated on Monument Row. Had she not been at the table, it is very unlikely that these progressive movements would have occurred. So I cite these examples to illustrate how museums are at the forefront of helping our visitors understand that we have a shared history. It is this shared history and this shared sense of the past that will guide contemporary and future discourse on what it means to be an American. We can only evaluate and understand what is happening today by placing our present in the continuum of what we call history. We draw from the past to make sense of the present. It is up to us as historians, curators, educators, and advocates to make sure that we interpret the past based on the most accurate information available. In addition to making sure that our staff and our boards are both diverse and inclusive, we must be aware of what we collect. Do our collections represent the diverse communities that we serve? When the Maryland Historical Society wanted to do an exhibition on the African American community in Maryland, it found that it did not have the objects in its collection to tell that story. In the absence of African American artifacts, it invited Fred Wilson to create an exhibition on blacks in Maryland. He creatively used the European objects such as the extensive silver collection to tell the story of enslavement by placing slave shackles in the case with the silverware. All of a sudden, the uh, slavery and the people who cleaned the silver became alive and a central part of the exhibition. In addition to our glorious past, we must tell those things that are not so glorious. These are things which make up the fabric of our history. We must tell the story of slavery, lynchings, injustices, and racism. The recent New York Times article 1619 Project, which John has mentioned, can guide us as we strive to be more inclusive institutions. This project challenges us to understand how slavery penetrated every aspect of, the, of American life and challenges us to place slavery and the black contribution to American history at the center of our historical narrative. By doing so, we understand that African Americans helped this nation live up to the ideals of our founding fathers and thus open up the ideals and constitutional rights to a variety of groups of suppressed people. We remain challenged to tell the stories of the mass massacre of thousands of Latinos in, the t- in Texas in the early 20th century, to the red summer of 1919, in which hundreds of blacks were killed, to the stone wall riots of, of 1969 that gave rise to the modern gay rights movement To the most recent mass shootings in El Paso, Texas and Dayton, Ohio. This year's theme, what are we waiting for, is most appropriate for our time. We have wrestled with controversies and tragedies such as police brutality, bias in the criminal justice system hate speech, hate crimes, sexual harassment amidst the failure of our political leadership. By the time this conference is over, we should have an answer to the question, what are we waiting for? We as museum professionals decide what stories we tell and what stories we remember. So it is up to us to tell a more A larger, more inclusive American story that speaks to all of us in the present and that can help guide us into the future. I end by saying, what are we waiting for? Thank you. (laughs) Thank you, so now we will have an aspect of our program that we have not had before, we will open up the uh, mics to uh, anyone who might have a question for any of us on, on stage, John, Norman, Dina, um, Kim, um. so we're prepared to, I think we're prepared to answer any questions and any comments, any suggestions that you have that you would like for us to consider as your council.
1: Um, I um, do a lot of work with organizations in Connecticut. Recently, I've been working with a Native American museum in Connecticut, and I'm noticing a lot, an absence of the Native voice here and an absence of reference to the genocide of Native people in the Americas. Um, it's, I don't know that I necessarily need a response, but I just want to call that out because uh, I was looking at the books, and there are a lot of... Hint- um, history books, I don't see one about Native Americans. Um, and it's a source of concern to me that we don't forget the people who are here first for 12, 13,000 years, um, who we, we all are complicit in their situation. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Very good point.
5: William Furry with the Illinois State Historical Society. John, with your permission, I would like to have it read right into the minutes, if possible, about the passing of Russell Lewis, Executive Director, Executive Vice President for the Chicago History Museum and a longtime supporter of ASLH, who passed away in April from pancreatic cancer.
0: Thank you, and so noted. Mm-hmm.
5: Bring local history and state and national history together uh, in discussing common interests and needs. Uh, Lon continued to write after he retired. He went back to Fort Davis, Texas. He uh, helped save uh, FM radio for uh, Western Texas, and he had a regular column on local history uh, called Tales of a Rambling Boy or something like that. And he he was just a wonderful historian, and he submitted his last uh, radio program, went to bed and did not wake up at age 79 about three years ago, or or three months ago. And uh, he was a board member of uh, ASLH back in the late 70s, I think. And he never forgot his love for history and his making a contribution. So I would like him to be recognized as well. Thank you.
0: Thank you, and so noted. And we will make these acknowledgments in uh, the uh, dispatch. I'm sorry, you go ahead and bend the person in the back. I just
6: want to thank John Dictal for his leadership and have that be publicly recognized. I'm a retired archivist, but I do a lot of mentoring with uh, people new to the archival profession, and I frequently recommended State and Local History Association because of its uh, wonderful technical leaflets and the information about artifacts, which is rarely available in library and information schools uh, today to uh, would-be archivists. And I would like to suggest that in planning future meetings, the Regional Archival Association of that area be invited to uh, participate in the meetings because a lot of them are historical society people that deal with exhibits and outreach. And I think that uh, they would benefit greatly by coming to one of your meetings. Thank you.
0: Absolutely think that the uh, state and local history is the one organization that serves all of our needs within our uh, individual uh, institutions more than uh, any other organization. Were there other comments? Yes, sir. I would like to make a comment. am a new member of First Time. The- let, me, let us get <laughs> you there.
7: I wanted to make a comment, I'm a new member and a first time attendee. Uh, my name is Sergio Villavicencio from the Alexander Hamilton Awareness Society. I just want to say how incredible of an experience this has been. Um, I, from the very first moment that I arrived, I felt very welcome. Everything has been extremely easy to navigate. My interactions with the members of the council has been very warm and uh, personalized. It is it is truly a great experience, and I want to congratulate you all for everything that you're doing. Good job.
0: Thank you. Are there other comments? Does, is there anyone uh, who would like to put Norman Burns on the spot? <laughs> <laughs>
6: Yes, I'd like to know how the organization and the executive director handle the issue of diversity within the organization's staff. Mm
0: -hmm. What's that? Did the lady in the blue have a question? No? Okay.
3: Is how I'm not sure I heard all of it. How is the organization handling the question of diversity and, and the question of the staff being diverse? Was that the question? Um, well, I'll, I can talk about the staff, um, but let me start with the organization. So I mentioned um, that council itself is going uh, um, has going through um, training. Um, through a series of meetings, the, the past few meetings, and it will be continuing probably indefinitely um, taking the IDI, uh, Intercultural Diversity, you no, know, Intercultural, help me, IDI, Inter- Intercultural Diversity Inventory um, questionnaire, and then that became the basis of working with a consulting firm, the Winters Group. Um, talking about uh, how each mem- each individual member of council and then the council as a whole where we fall on that scale and the work that we each need to do and as a group. And so much of council's time in the last three meetings has been spent talking about how to create a, um, a, 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 a space for council to have the kinds of discussions it needs to be uh, inclusive in the way I think that, that John Fleming was talking about um, getting far beyond diversity And so that conversation is now uh, working with the diversity inclusion committee, um, which is well represented on council to then spread that to all committees. uh, And that will be filtering down through the organization, filtering across, we hope. Um, It is also something that we are talking about as a staff. We are waiting to see how the IDI training and the work that council is doing, how that goes. uh, And then staff will be doing something similar Um, but we haven't quite gotten there yet. Um, It is something that we think about every time we've had a position open since I've been there. Um, We've tried very hard. We have worked with institutions in Nashville where we're headquartered um, um, with a couple of HBCUs there um, trying to um, draw attention to the positions in our office. Um, We have made sure that when the positions are open that the descriptions of those Positions are not written in a way that um, would immediately uh, be off-putting, um, I'm sure we have work to do there. Um, we are always trying to, uh, I personally, and I know other members of the staff are always trying to broaden our network so that um, things that go on in the office, particularly job openings, um, people know about. Um, but um, I will say I have a terrific staff, and I'm not going to fire any of them right now. Um, <laughs> Or ever uh, but there is a lot of opportunity for growth in the office as I, as I heard me say over and over we need more staff so we will be doing a better and better job of uh, trying to make the staff more diverse okay.
6: i
7: just wanted to respond to the comment about the american indian presence at the conference uh, it was an explicit conversation that we actually had in the planning stages, and planning committee uh, uh, members will remember that. Um, we had really had we had a few really great proposals from folks, some of whom you've heard from before here, who are uh, museum directors and program folks who work with tribal members, and some of you will, you know, consider them familiar people who do great work with tribal partners. What we had a real dearth of are tribal people. Are who work with museums or historic sites who submitted proposals despite actually um, people reaching out and asking if they might be interested in proposing at our conference. Um, We did actually do some work on the back end of program committee and ask uh, some partners to put together a proposal and uh, did have a set of tribal partners have a proposal and a session here at the conference that's already happened so if you didn't get to go to that I, I, I regret that um, but we actually had a really great conversation with um, some of those presenters at lunch a couple of us did and talked about you know why is it that ASLH why do you think it is that ASLH um, doesn't have the the robust a robust presence of tribal partners doing this work and also talked about this trend that's happening among Um, tribal folks of of heritage centers opening and what do they think that will mean. and I won't go into all that here because that's not the right venue, but one of the things they talked about, which is relevant to what are we waiting for, I thought was really interesting, is they talked about how organizations like ASLH um, and they talked about academic organizations and others that didn't make room for voices like tribal voices uh, years ago um, kind of created a, a situation where... Um, American Indian partners created their own spaces right and created their own organizations where they convened together, and that um, you know that if we're going to create those partnerships now we 're going to have to be really intentional and because these are people who are incredibly busy trying to serve their people in lots of ways and So I just want to acknowledge that it was a really great conversation. I don't want to make that sound like there was some sort of negative connotation in saying we have to be really intentional and um, thoughtful about how we build those bridges. But I, you know, I think that we just have to recognize that when you're asking a TIPO or a cultural affairs officer from a tribe to come and present, they're dealing with everything from NAGPRA requests, Section 106, um, all those things, plus coming to present here. And so. I was really grateful that we had tribal representatives here presenting, but it's going to be just like it is with our museums, right? It's going to be a long road of building those relationships um, into, our, into our space if we don't already have them. So I hope that makes sense and doesn't sound too much of a downer, but it's, it's just not something we can sort of pony magic, uh, unicorn magic, um, happen overnight.
0: Thank you. <coughs> Thank Time has come for the close of the annual business meeting. I'm sure that all of you are wondering where my gavel is. And um, at the end of our council meeting yesterday, I was told that I had misused the gavel and I would no longer have access to it. So (laughs) officially, I declare this meeting adjourned. Thank you.